many of our small and mid-sized IMBs continue to retain servicing. And it really is about that customer relationship. There is no question, though, if you look at the MSR buyers and the valuation firms, um, you know, the demand has firmed in the last several months and you've seen MSR sales actually pick up. Uh, I think that's a function as well as people are, you know, looking at what's happened in the market over the last couple of months and they're looking for that capital uh, to be able to continue to fund operations. So I think that's a, you know, that's a reality. Don't have many repeat guests on the housing news podcast, but when you have a housing professional that wears as many hats and makes as much impact as Christy Furco, it is only right to have her back for a second episode on housing news. Christy serves as the chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association. She is also an EVP and head of Wells Fargo Home Lending, and she leads the Affordable Housing Working Group for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC's REACH Initiative. In today's conversation with Christy, we do a, a recap of the MBA servicing conference. That's why we're dropping this episode on Tuesday. We want to get it to you as fast as possible. We also talk about the unique confluence of supply and demand and rising rates and how those are impacting significantly lower mortgage prepays and driving up MSR values. It's a really fascinating economic relationship. And Christy really has a hand on how depository and IMB leaders are thinking about the future of MSRs, what they're retaining, what they're selling, and how they're thinking about 2022 origination volume. I hope you enjoy this episode. Going back to normal, it's like what the new normal will be, or what what we what we make it to be. And um, I mean, like in your business, you're managing a, a nationally distributed team, and uh, so like sitting in one location is that does that even make sense? I mean, if you, you you have to talk to people from coast to coast every single day. No, that's exactly right. And for that way, Zoom has been beneficial because at least now you're looking at people, whereas before yep. we didn't use video conferencing in the same way that we've been using it since Zoom. So from that standpoint, I think that's been an enhancement for people who never kind of saw each other. Conference calls now, whenever I'm in on a call without a Zoom, I'm like, what's going on? Like, we're, like I can't see anyone. Where's the Zoom? It's so weird just talking on the phone now. Oh, it's the worst. Like we, um, I know it's like a few professions are still resisting. I think like lawyers and accountants most, most, um, <laughs> most noticeably, but if I can get our law firm to turn on video. I feel like it's like a win for the day. Like, yeah, I'm like, exactly. Exactly. like no, we, we prefer to circulate this dial in with a 16 digit number. If you to type in to try to get into it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but uh, well, um, sometimes we get a little like a little teaser in the beginning. So like some, I don't know, we all often like there's some, you know, fun conversation that happens before like the actual interview. So, but yeah, it's really, really cool to hear about how you're, how you're planning to planning for the reentry to the office. And um, I, I imagine like, are there still people on your team that you have not met in person or have conferences and like in just your history in the industry made a lot of those introductions already? Well, actually, so I met my entire leadership team at the MBA. I had them all come to the National MBA Conference so I could meet them. 
I had previously only met two of them uh, before. Um, one, he lived in Charlotte. So I saw him when I did a house hunting trip. <laughs> and then the other, unfortunately, my father-in-law passed away. And so we went to Phoenix for, um, you know, his celebration of of life back in, in 2021. So I was able to meet a second direct report there, which, um, you know, but other than that, I hadn't met anyone. And so, yeah, I had them all come to the NBA conference. It was the first time I'd met them in person. And it, that was actually super cool because, you know, again, a new leader, you're trying to build chemistry with your team and you're doing it on zoom. And, you know, I, I started doing things um, like happy hour, you know, like, oh, let's do happy hour, no work conversation, go get a cocktail, let's just sit and talk and chat and get to know each other. And those had become actually really fun. So I felt like we were getting to know each other. And, you know, you could always tell like the laughter quotient on a call and, you know, like, does anybody ever slip it back into work stuff? Or is everybody comfortable just like truly talking personally and whatever? And so I was feeling like it was a pretty good team. But when we were all together in San Diego at the conference, it was like, it was electric. It was like, we were all so excited to see each other. And then it was also fun, you know, just being like, oh, you're taller than I thought, or you're skinnier than I thought, or you know, you're younger than I thought. Like, it was just so funny to see these impressions that get formed through a zoom box and then you actually see a live person. And so, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. So I have all my directs now in my team, I've met everyone. Um, but obviously my extended, you know, team, the rest of the leadership team, I haven't, I haven't met yet. So I'm looking forward to that. that. That's really cool. Do you ever run into scenarios where you forget if you've met somebody in person because like the, the connection you can build on video is, is pretty real. We, we had our whole yeah. team in, in Dallas in December and there was a couple people. I was like, have we met in person yet? Cause it feels like we have, but I, then I like yeah. I'm thinking back on travel schedules and realizing you know, it was actually the first time we've shaken hands. Yeah, no, exactly. That that's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's our new world. It's yeah. our new Zoom world for sure. But people are getting back out there. So we're talking about NBA annual last year, but this week you're yeah. just coming back from NBA servicing. So you were down yeah. in, Ar in Orlando last week, correct? I was, yeah. I'm back on the road. So I've done IMB. We had craft, like Valentine's uh, week. And then I had NBA servicing. And then I'm home for five days. And then I head out to Colorado for uh, the NBA's midwinter conference. So I am full back into the NBA travel schedule. <laughs> Excellent. So how did, how was servicing? What were some of the key themes that were being talked about in Orlando? You know, it was really excellent. I mean, I think part of it, you know, in my opening, um, you know, kind of kickoff keynote, if you will, I really thanked the group. I mean, I think as an industry, we have um, a lot of gratitude for the servicing folks. I mean, think about, think about what we've all been through with COVID over the last, uh, you know, now 24 months, which is insane to even say out loud. And, you know, those folks, I mean, had to do it, you know, moved everybody home, mm -hmm. took record volume for the industry, this unprecedented, you know, kind of free, you know, anybody can come in, no need to demonstrate hardship. Like everybody just gets to skip payments who is in need, right? It was the most robust response by, you know, kind of our government on a program and they took it in stride. I mean, as an industry, we put over 4 million people in forbearance and, you know, and now have transitioned 
you know, most of those people out, you know, we've cut the delinquency rate in half by doing that or more than half by doing that. And, you know, all the while these guys were doing that and helping others and being the listening ear and being the, you know, kind of consultant and the counselor and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that. And they were dealing with their own issues at home and homeschooling and adjusting. So it just, I, I just, I really started just by, you know, thank you. Uh, to to the them and for how they really lifted up not only you know kind of our customers in need but um, our industry and made us look really really good. Now you know there's going to be people who you know kind of may look to find fault with some of the things that you know we did as a servicing industry, but you know on the whole, I'm super proud of what we what we did and especially the ever changing nature of it. It literally seemed like every day there was something new and these guys rallied like champs. And so just really proud of them, really proud of our industry. So I sent that message kind of first and foremost. And, you know, I think, you know, now all of a sudden, obviously the focus is turning to a smaller origination market. What are the implications of that? Um, you know, for servicers, this inflation that's accompanying this higher interest rates. And, you know, what is that going to mean for household affordability? I mean, wage growth and income growth really hasn't grown over the last two years in the same way. And so while you have some people who are still trying to recover financially from, you know, maybe they were the waiter at the restaurant, or maybe they were, you know, kind of a, a private, small business. I mean, they're still taking a hit financially and trying to recover from that. And now they're dealing with just, you know, base inflation, right? 7.5% I saw, which was, you know, kind of the highest in certainly recent years, um, you know, that that has created then um, additional pressures for them. So what is that going to mean for people who just got into a modification, they've recovered and um, you know, so what what could that potentially mean for them? And so, um, you know, so there's a lot of talk about that and what do we need to, you know, what do we need to do? And then again, just, you know, additional programs as we move forward to help people. Like, what did we learn about putting people in forbearance and then the options when they came out of it, right? Deferrals and partial claims. And, you know, that was all really helpful. We didn't have a lot of those tools before. And so, um, and so what does that mean going forward, right? Well, we have all these tools at our disposal going forward and should they be just a part of the toolkit? Um, and then the final thing I'd say was a lot of the conversation was around those who still need help. Some of the hardest hit funds and, you know, some of the now states are coming with their additional monies and just, you know, really making sure there's an understanding of the interpretation of those programs. And, you know, unfortunately, each state's going to come with their unique program, which will present unique challenges to servicers as we're trying to figure out, you know, how to accommodate all those different nuances, you know, in a state. And so, you know, just wanting to get people help and support, but, you know, also trying to navigate it so that we can execute it well. And so that was a lot of the conversation as well. Those are some, some big topics. Let, let's, uh, let's talk about the, the, the I, I talk. Do, do you have three hours, Christy? Three day uh, conference, so. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about a lot of stuff. So let's, let's talk about the economy for a second. So, so how we're, we're approaching full employment. 
Um, economy seems to be running pretty quickly. Home prices are obviously running or ran extremely quickly in 2021 and seem to be continuing a pace in 2022. We won't say it's the same as 2021. So how are, how are servicers thinking about the relationship between an economy that that's working and, and inflation is, are there other household expense pressures that could put pressure on a consumer's ability to to meet their mortgage obligations and potentially put consumers at risk that they might be employed, but maybe their wage growth isn't keeping up with um, with inflation. Yeah, I mean, I think they are for sure, Clayton, and I, I think that's what we're you know I think that's what we're working toward. I mean, yeah. the one thing about this class crisis very different from the housing crisis, but I think the level of inequity that kind of exists in, um, you know, kind of the haves and the have-nots, if you will, um, I think really widened out during uh, during this last crisis. And, um, you know, those who may have been affected and either were furloughed from their job or displaced from their jobs uh, or their jobs just had to shut down and, you know, kind of were looking for options, you know, I, I do believe those households took a hit. And, you know, they are trying to recover. I think people ate into 401k. I think people ate into savings. And that, you know, even though they may be back to work and things are starting to normalize, whatever whatever normalize means in a post-COVID world, um, I do think, you know, there's a lot of families who are still trying to um, get back on their feet and rebuild their nest egg. And so I do think this inflation is real. And um, you know, in, at 7.5%, wage growth has not kept up. You would see some families who are actually losing money um, uh, uh, based on their household income. And so I do think it's something to watch. I do think it's something to, you know, pay attention to. And with the president, you know, recently just extending the, you know, national emergency and allowing people more time to potentially go into forbearance. I mean, I thought by now we would start seeing those new entries into forbearance basically be falling off that you know down to like zero they're not i mean people are still entering forbearance which i think is a is a you know resulting impact of what you just described um and so i think it is definitely something that we should you know pay attention to as inflation continues to rise as interest rates continue to you know to increase um you know what does that do for you know, the average American family. It seems like the extension of forbearance programs is a, is a great thing for, for homeowners and the, those where the, the level of an equity got even, even wider over the last two years, but it could be one of the one, probably not anywhere near the top, but one of the contributing factors to just tight overall inventory. So when you think about like the the folks that are forming households today or who have not ventured into the adventure of, of homeownership yet. Um, how do you think those, like the forbearance programs kind of play into home price appreciation and inventory and, and potentially feed into that smaller origination market that we're anticipating in 2022? Well, I think it does completely. I, I yeah. think they're all combined. I mean, basically, yeah. you know, we've had a foreclosure moratorium and while that's a sad way to, you know, populate, um, you know, kind of our housing supply. The reality is that's a natural cycle, uh, you know, kind of in uh, in the home buying process. And, um, you know, basically that supply has not 
happened over the last two years with the moratorium coming in. And so I do think supply has been impacted, which has driven the home price appreciation, uh, right? It's plastic supply and demand. If there's more demand, you know, chasing limited supply, then home prices are going to go up, right? Those goods become um, more expensive. And I think that's what you're seeing in the housing market um, right now. And so I do think it's definitely creating an affordability issue. Um, and, you know, even some of the stock that is there, right? So, you know, you would also see people as their new home needed repairs, right? You would actually see people then say, oh, well, maybe it's time to buy a new home or, you know, we want need to add on or we need an additional bedroom. And I mean, we all noticed that during COVID, right? Like our current house, all of a sudden you're spending, you know, 24 hours a day in your home. You're rec- you're recognizing all the things that no longer work for your, you know, life of, of being at home. And so I think, I think you actually saw that, but there wasn't a lot of options. Yeah. And so you had people then, and that's where home equity became really important, right? You had people like doing the do-it-yourself projects or, you know, thinking they would really stay in place and try to rehab their home, but then availability of, um, you know, labor to be able to do the work uh, was certainly an impact. And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot that just really factored into what we just saw and, um, you know, and, and we'll continue to see, because I think, I think demand's going to continue to outpace um, supply for a while. And so until we can really get some new housing starts, until construction can, you know, kind of continue to pick up, um, I think we're going to have to get creative, right? I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me at the CREF conference was people were talking about, you know, do you take office buildings in in urban centers and t- turn those into affordable housing units? Um, you know, and some really cool things happening in New York around that vein, because you've got the support. And so I think we're going to have to be um, need to be creative to, you know, solve this issue. The interconnectivity of all this is like what makes me the most fascinated about the housing industry. So you talk about like the people who want the extra bedroom for a home office or growing, growing family, but the, the trade up buyer is scared to death right now. Like they can, they have a ton of housing wealth. They're sitting on equity. Um, they believe in housing as an investment because they just saw this massive home price appreciation spike in 2021. But they know if they list their house, it's gone in 24 hours and they don't know if they can buy something on their side because they're going to be with everybody else in the world submitting. Uh, well, they're, they're going to be submitting an offer. And they're going to be one of 75 people. I, I think actually, I believe it was in North Carolina. I don't know if it was in Charlotte. There was like a meme circulating this weekend of a um, of an open house with several hundred people lined up outside of the house because it was a um, lower than average price point in that North Carolina market. I think it was in the low 300s and um, like people were lined up as far as the eye can see. And everyone's afraid to be like that trade up buyer who sells and doesn't have somewhere else to go. But that plays right into the servicing conversation we were having. So right now it seems like MSR values are shooting through the roof, rising rates contributes to that. um, And there's demand from buyers, but there's also like record low mortgage prepays because people aren't, aren't selling. So it's, it's really interesting how the supply to demand uh, imbalance plays into MSR values and probably some of the topics that were top of mind in Orlando last week. Yeah, it, for sure. I mean, that that was precisely the conversation. And you think about it. I mean, again, as you look at the origination's forecast, 
what I think is interesting is, you know, the MBA is at, you know, kind of a $2.5 trillion market in 2022 after close to, you know, kind of $4 trillion uh, in, in 2021. And a huge piece of that is, you know, purchases are basically flat to up slightly, but you've got the refinances that fall off. And think about that for the next decade, especially in this, maybe not as far as a decade, but given this rising rate environment, I mean, we have this historic low interest rate environment. And this one's, you know, this one, we still are at historic lows, right? My first house that I bought in the early 90s was a 12% interest rate, right? So uh, we are nowhere near high interest rates yet. Um, but historically, based on where we've been, it certainly does feel like we are. And and so I think that is the thing to watch. And so products like home equity, right, where people can tap into the equity but maintain the low interest rate, that's going to be really important as people, you know, think about about affordability um, and about servicing. Um, but this, you know, the the book that we've just put on over the last three years um, you know, investors are going to really win uh, because I think the duration of uh, those loans on the book, um, you know, those will continue to pay for a long time given the historic rates that we've had. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. I know coming into this like last IPO wave IMBs <laughs> over the last 18, 24 months, um, retaining servicing was quite in vogue. It was the, uh, it was the recurring revenue line that everybody wanted to put out there to, to kind of present themselves a little bit differently than historical views of, of mortgage origination shops. Um, it feels like the tide might be turning or the, the wind might be changing a little bit on, on IMB's views of, uh, of withholding or holding on to, to servicing. Uh, T- tell us a little bit more about what you're hearing in the market today th- through your lens as chairwoman of the MBA, what you're hearing from the kind of the MBA membership on how they're thinking about servicing rights and what makes sense to to hold on the balance sheet and what makes sense to find liquidity on. Yeah. So, you know, I would say many of our small and mid-sized IMBs continue to retain servicing. And it really is about that customer relationship. So think about you know, credit unions and some of the small retail shops. I mean, they want to retain retain that customer, retain that customer relationship. So that's important, as well as, you know, again, the liquidity of um, that asset and kind of what that actually means for uh, those servicers, the cash flow that comes in with that. And so um, I'd say we we still see a number of um, people continuing to retain servicing. There is no question, though, if you look at the MSR um, buyers and the valuation firms, um, you know, the demand has um, firmed in the last uh, several months, and you've seen MSR sales actually pick up. Uh, I think that's a function as well as people are you know, looking at what's happened in the market over the last couple of months, and they're looking for that capital uh, to be able to continue to fund operations as the gain on sale isn't as robust as uh, where we've seen it over the last two years. So I think that's a, you know, that's a reality um, for a number. And I think it's going to, you know, as you think about um, new capital and liquidity proposals that FHFA have had and Jimmy, um, I think that could definitely impact um, you know, that could impact people's desire to, you know, kind of sell servicing or not. 
I think what we've seen of FHA and, you know, them really leaning into the servicing defect taxonomy, which is something coming out of the last crisis we had asked for, right, that clarity um, for servicers. Um, I think that's been a, a huge part of FHA's servicing reforms and, um, you know, um, uh, Secretary Fudge, uh, I think, has been really responsive to the market and their need for that. Um, you know, I think the NBA believes that, you know, it's going to be important for us to continue to reduce servicing costs, to be able to provide greater certainty for servicers in regards to compliance risk, which is why that uh, FHA move is so important. Um, and I think all those reforms, you know, um, just will continue to help people feel more comfortable with the servicing asset as you move forward. So I, I would say I think the lion's share of people are going to continue to hold servicing um, and, and retain it. And, uh, you know, you'll always see those that are looking to leverage that, especially when you get into a, you know, revenue or income constrained market, which I definitely feel like we're going into. Yeah, to put some some numbers to the wave we saw in January, one of our journalists, Bill Conroy, reported that in January, 180 billion of residential bulk MSR markets were were brought to brought to market. That is three times the the average monthly bulk inventory in in 2021. So, like we started the year with the bang, and it seems like tr- February is continuing that trend, uh, which is which is just fascinating. Okay. You mentioned you on the. Sorry, I was just going to say, Clayton, you wonder, is it a quick reaction to the market shift, right? Because January happened so aggressively. I And we knew it was going to change, but I think it hit even faster than some people were expecting. So is that an immediate response? Like, okay, let's get ahead of it because if a number of people are going to start selling, let's get ahead of it. So we're in early and we, you know, the, the yep. you know, the, the price is still very, um, uh, you know, very strong. And so do you see people trying to get in early and that's going to normalize. Um, I think that will be the thing to watch over the next couple of months is to see, does that normalize or that stay strong? And I think the, the rhetoric in Q4 of like cash is King, like, yeah. like bolster up that balance sheet. You're either going to acquire or be acquired, or you're going to yeah. enter a tough, a tough market environment. Like January is a logical time to like, to reinforce the balance sheet. And um, yeah. And especially like exactly what you said, kind of get, get ahead of the market a little bit. Uh, you mentioned on like the the membership that uh, some of the folks that are most prone to ret- retain servicing are like the the credit unions and community banks. How, are you seeing the trend play out any differently between kind of the the mortgage bankers, the IMBs, and the in the depository institutions? I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, we. I mean, obviously, depositories because you know they have the balance sheet and continue to you know, use that cash flow to, you know, drive their net interest margin um, and interest income. So, you know, no, but I don't, I don't see a strong divergence yet uh, in the market between depositories and IMBs. I would say we're definitely still seeing some of the IMBs. And again, just, um, you know, coming off of the conference um, and the conversation at the conference, I mean, a number of people were still very much talking about retaining servicing. I would not identify a theme of the conference as people were kind of looking to dump their MSR. And again, it, it was a servicing conference. So um, uh, so maybe that wasn't the right place for it. But uh, that was definitely not a theme coming out of the market, even though the numbers that you just 
uh, described would certainly say people are, are leaning in and, and that MSR sales has definitely picked up. Yeah. I mean, and if we're going to see lower mortgage prepays for a long period of time, like it makes sense to sell. And like, you're still going to see people retaining their 2022 vintage as rates start to rise. So, I mean, it's, it's a cycle, right? So I I wonder if that, I wonder if that like changes at all at, at midwinter in a few, in a few weeks, if like the, if the C-suite has the same, um, the same conversation points as like the servicing executives. You are exactly right. I will circle back and let you know my senses and the fact that, you know, another two weeks have passed. I mean, this market, especially where we didn't really have Ukraine, right? Ukraine was just, and what was happening with Ukraine and Russia, that was just starting to crest when we were in servicing. And so it will be very interesting to see uh, in two weeks at midwinter, uh, or actually a week now at midwinter, what uh, what the tone and tenor is. I'm, I'm sure another hot topic is is going to be margin compression. It seems like the 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 earnings announcements from Q4 as they start to come out kind of keep telling that story of um, kind of year over year and, and quarter over quarter sequential declines and in uh in margin seems like there's like this story has some legs i i'm curious from your vantage point at the nba if you're if you see mortgage bankers changing their priorities at all or anything that's becoming more important as we enter 22 and and what might be or, or what will be a lower a lower production volume environment and what is likely to be a continued lower margin environment yes very much so so at the imb conference in nashville at the end of january um, you know, the, um, I participated in the IMB Executive Council meeting, and we had a great dialogue about 2022 and what that means. And, you know, I would tell you a, a key theme that came out of that was very much around cost reduction. I mean, the cost of originating a loan has continued to increase, you know, well over $9,000 now. And, um, you know, we were making a lot of money, so people were less focused on it. And I think, People are very much focused on taking costs out of the out of the process, out of the origination process, being as efficient as you can. Um, that was a, a pretty significant part of the conversation. And then what went with that was also technology. And it was really interesting. Um, you know, there was, I would say, a very mixed view on technology. In fact, you know, some were saying technology is the key to efficiency and driving costs down. Others were saying, you know, at the incremental cost per loan, does it pay for itself? And some of that's a function of how efficient your process already is. Some of it's a function of your ability to integrate, you know, technology into your process to be able to drive efficiency in that process. So the cost and then the role that technology plays in that cost reduction was very much a theme and I think will continue to be. And then you've seen some actions that people have taken already in the at the end of Q4 and certainly here, uh, you know, in this first quarter around shuttering businesses, right? Just stopping uh, different channels of origination or, you know, joint ventures and, you know, kind of getting out of the joint venture space. Um, so I think you'll see people hunker down into what their, you know, core knitting is, if you will, um, and really figure out where they lean in. I think we'll see more M&A and people will look at where are those kind of efficiencies that you can get as well as adjacent, you know, kind of business extensions that, you know, acquisition growth versus organic growth. So I think I think 2022 is going to be a fascinating year. 
Where do you think mortgage lenders have gone wrong in their relationship with technology? Because the promise of digital mortgages, the promise of technology is more efficiency. Um, it clearly has has not played out to date. But I mean, I, if you're a, a technology believer, you think that future is still there. But it, it just um, it might have to come at the promise of technology is more efficiency at lower headcount. And are lenders willing to make the process changes to to achieve that vision? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think it's both process change, Clayton, and it's also culture change, right? I mean, think about it. Like you put in the technology and then you you allow the team to do the same process that they were doing. It's just it you just added cost to the system because you've added technology now, right? It it's the proverbial plowing over the cow pasture or uh, paving over the cow pasture, right? You have fundamentally changed your process to create this kind of super highway to really drive that efficiency. And so I think this is a, and it, um, you know, I always talk about it's people and technology. I, a mortgage and home ownership, right? Purchasing a home is still the largest financial transaction that many people will ever have and so or ever make. And so the ability to be able to do that without ever talking to a person, especially for first-time home buyers or especially for the purchase transaction, um, I think it's going to be really unusual. And so how do you take people and technology? And I think the key that companies have to do, and this very much came up in that IMB um, council discussion that we had at the MBA conference, was very much about how do you drive a level of culture change and communicate to your team how important they are to adopting this technology and driving it forward. And they don't have to protect their job. There'll be plenty of other value-added activities that they can go do. And I mean, think about the cost of an underwriter right now, right? The value of an underwriter is really in their decision and judgment over are you making a good quality loan? It is not in checking and ticking and talking documents, right? Which is in some ways what their job has become. So to the extent that you can get technology to automatically verify income or verify assets, and then they are looking at the holistic picture of that person and doing exception-based you know, processing or exception-based underwriting, that's the value add. But you have to make sure that you're being articulate with them around that opportunity and that their job's not in jeopardy with this. It provides more opportunities for you to grow and expand your company and have them do more value-added work. Like that's the conversation. That's what you want to drive. And I think that's where we've fallen down as an industry. We haven't done a good job of articulating that value-add. So people are afraid of it. I think technology helps people find their highest and best use. And the the people who adopt technology, push forward processes, they're always going to have a home. They're, they're going to become leaders, not checkers, checking checkers. And it's the curmudgeons that, that resist that are probably going to have a harder time being part of the future of this industry or, or any industry. I see that play out in so many places. Do, do you think it's this has to start at the top? Like, is there a new generation of mortgage banking leadership who needs to come in and like shake up culture to really start seeing some of the, the efficiencies of technology? Or do, do you think our, our, like the, the current leadership across the you know top tier mortgage bankers is ready to, to shake it up and make this happen? 
Well, I think it's got to be both, right? And so, you know, no offense to <laughs> the top level executives in mortgage banking, of which I'm one of them, but we've seen this play out for the last 20, 30 years, exactly how we know it, right? We aren't known for innovation in the mortgage industry. Yeah. And um, so to think it's just going to come from the existing leadership, I don't think that's going to happen. And that's why I'm excited about some of these fintech companies, or you're looking to you know, other industries and seeing what they're doing and what's the, you know, kind of applicability of that into, um, you know, mortgage lending. I think that's going to be really important for us to get our eyes open. But I also think, you know, it's, it's the, you know, kind of newer people coming into the process. And if you empower them to say, how do you do this cheaper, easier, better, faster, and create a better customer experience? No limits. Like you look at the process, you're doing it every day. Tell us how you would be able to do it. And you engage some of these new technology companies. I think we'll find the better way. And so I think it has to be top down has to drive culture and expectation, right? Unleash, we, we call it unleash the power of your, um, of our people at Wells Fargo. Um, I froze for a second. Sorry. Um, but we call it unleash the power of our people. You know, at Wells Fargo, it's kind of like, how do you unleash the team to be, um, you know, to be creative, to be innovative, to find the better way? And so that tone from the top has to come. But then you also have to empower the team to, you know, go drive that level of efficiency. And I think they'll do it. And then you create the tipping point, right? For those who want to stay the old way we've always done it, um, you know, I think that that the companies that do that will be dinosaurs. And so we're going to yeah. have to evade our way through this. Well, I, I certainly wasn't putting you in the bucket of the old guard holding back technology <laughs> ever since um, Rocky Stubbs and uh, Brian view introduced me to you the first time, like five years ago at an NBA event, I've always seen you as a, a change agent. So um, I was not putting you in that category. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so, one one final serious question, and then we'll wrap up. So we talked a lot about economic and industry conditions. How is this playing out in legislative priorities? Is the NBA focusing in on any legislative policy priorities that are that are that are new or or more important than ever as we enter twenty twenty two? Yeah, you know, I'd say the NBA is continue to focus on what are the you know most critical things for the industry, and how do we really lean into that. Um, you know, a big priority is one of the priorities that I've uh, kind of identified as the chair, uh, which is, um, you know, this real focus on promoting minority home ownership and advancing diversity in our industry. And I think you see um, both FHFA and um, I talked about Secretary Fudge earlier at FHA, um, you know, both of them also have priorities around uh, advancing minority home ownership and driving more equity in housing. And so the NBA is very much focused, um, you know, kind of with that as well and, and looking at, you know, where are the systemic barriers in our policies and legislation and our practices uh, that are, um, you know, impacting this ability of home ownership being available for all. And so, you know, my platform um, as chair, so the Home for All pledge, really does do that. It challenges member companies to come alongside the NBA and promote minority home ownership, promote affordable rental housing, and really um, you know look at diversity, equity, inclusion uh, in our industry. And so, 
you know, those will continue to be um, focus areas for the NBA. There's four pillars to it. And one is around fostering public policies and industry practices that actually promote and sustain minority homeownership. Um, the second pillar is around supporting market-based solutions. So the NBA has convergence and really supporting market-based solutions and understanding what's happening locally in these communities and how do you you know, create holistic solutions to be able to drive it. And then the third is, you know, really around championing, um, you know, diversity in the workforce and uh, in our industry. So we, we're really driving that, that fourth pillar then just is our member companies, both on the single family and multifamily side, um, you know, our members are doing great things to support inclusion in housing. And so we're kind of um, lumping some of their actions underneath that. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the energy so far um, from the industry and response um, to that. And, you know, it, it's really aligning our conversations in Washington as we think about how do we continue to you know, lean into, um, into Washington and some of the policies, but really promoting equity in housing is, is a key pillar. Well, for our listeners, we'll make sure to include a link um, for more information about the Home for All pledge in the show notes so everyone can dig in deeper and learn more about these four four pillars. Um, Christy, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're an extremely busy person as the, the chair of the NBA, head of Wells Fargo Home Lending, um, also leading a working group for the OCC. And I know I'm just um, kind of scratching the surface of the areas where you spend your time. But thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you and, and learning from you. Thanks, Clayton. Great to be with you guys. Take care. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.